Well, Dave, uh, you know, racism is sort of like the white whale for me. I feel like I've been just trying to figure out where racism started my whole life. Well, this episode has been building for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, I, you know, I, I was thinking, I tried to, when I, back when I tried to figure out when it started, I was looking at like, um, maybe anti-Semitism, you know, and the Crusades, right? Where they, you, you know, you kind of define Islam as like the enemy, um, and, and try to create a unified front of Christendom or, uh, the West against the East, but. Huh. And then there's I, the, then there's I was royal of the uh, yeah. Israelites and the Canaanites. Yeah, yeah, it could be that. Yeah, that's a good one too. I was thinking, or also like even royal. The whole idea of a royal bloodline is also kind of gets you primed for racism, right? Like there's this family of people that is superior because of their blood, keep the bloodlines pure, and all that. The ancient Greeks had a word for anybody who wasn't Greek. Bar barbarian. barbarian. Because that's <laughs> what their languages sounded like to a Greek. Like they were making just noises like bar, 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 bar. <laughs> so a combination of ignorance and fear. And you can find those any any period in history. But to turn it into a system of thought... That's uh, you need a you need science for that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, like you could go back. Uh, I guess this is early 18th century. You have people like Michel Montaigne, Pierre Charon, Jean Baudin, and these are all talking about like tropical, like the tropical environment, which produces people who are lazy. Temperate environments produce people who are. Uh, you know, virtuous. And Montesquieu, Adam Ferguson, William Falconer, they all had that link between climate, temperament, and civilization. William Falconer in particular said, the best possible balance of human qualities is to be found near the northern edge of the temperate zone. Do you see how that, th these words like no northern edge of the temperate zone, they add this kind of scientific feel sound to what's basically just <laughs> chauvinism yeah no it's pretty clear they're talking about northwest europe and yeah. and they're talking about themselves <laughs> yeah most cases. so you you it's start just, uh... from the conclusion you 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 form a conclusion and then you go and find evidence to support it so you go yeah. with yeah climate that's it i, I heard some <laughs> of that stuff the south europeans were uh indolent and lazy because of the heat like just the idea of siesta mm. it, it uh to a northwest european it just seems like sleeping in the middle of the day right yeah Can't well having having been in spain when it was 45 degrees outside <laughs> it's just yeah you, you, yeah yeah and the north europeans because of the cold were more active <laughs> and right and like I say, you have to start with your conclusion and then yeah. go look for evidence. Because if you actually studied any other facts like ancient Greece and Rome, somehow the climate didn't bother them. And um, 
weren't they doing amazing things while the Germans were still sharpening sticks? To even kill even each other by with? the sti- is yeah, even by the standards of the people who wrote this stuff, didn't they worship the Romans and Greeks? Yep. And you have to kind of ignore the fact that the Renaissance started in Italy or that Spain dominated Europe for 150 years. You just have to ignore. You have to be very, very selective <laughs> did, with your. Did fact. they explain? Did they explain these things away at all, or was it? No, 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 no. You simply do not refer to them, right? So, as far as like scientific racist classification, uh, I was able to find people who argue that it starts with a guy named Francois Bernier. So, I think Francois Bernier was a physician who traveled uh, all over the world. Um, I think a lot, he traveled a lot in the Muslim world. And so he came up with, uh, I think he wrote a book called A New Division of the Earth by the Different Species or quote-unquote Races of Man that Inhabit It. Uh, And he had four humors uh, and four colors, white, black, red, and yellow. So, you know, the humor goes with the color. If you're red, you're hot. If you're black, you're, I guess, I don't know what. (laughs) I didn't look up all the humors, but obviously white is the best humor. This is Um, just an updated uh, approach to the medical ideas of Shakespeare's time, right? That your personality is based on the fluid that dominates inside your body. So you have phlegmatic and choleric Mm -hmm. and sanguine, like, Yes, I remember those words when I was reading about Bernier. Phlegmatic, yeah. choleric. And so, and bile, right? Yeah. Something yeah. to do with bile. <laughs> uh, okay. So an imbalance so, uh, you know, in the humors will cause illnesses. Right. So then we have William Dampier, a British explorer in Australia in the late 17th century, similar time to Bernier. And he... He conc- he concludes uh, about the Australian uh, Aboriginal people that they have the most unpleasant looks and the worst features of any people that I ever saw. Um, and then Peter Cunningham is trying to measure. Uh, he he argues that maybe this is the connecting link between man and the monkey tribe. So they're doing this monkey thing yeah. uh, before, well before Darwin. Um. Then we mentioned uh, Darwin, I guess, was a member of the Linnaean Society. So Carl Linnaeus, I think, was Swedish. 1735, he wrote the Systema Naturae, four races of men, white, yellow, red, and black. Um, In the 1758 edition, he added uh, another race, which was orangutans, which he said was basically another kind of race of men. Um, Which, you know, they do seem awfully human-like, so... Uh, it's it, it's I guess it's not that different to say what I believe, which is that we're apes, um, than to say that apes are human. <laughs> it's a little different. It's different. Okay, I tried. Um, so the the noble science of craniometry, measuring heads uh, and skulls and so on, that starts in the late nineteenth century um, by Peter Camper, apparently, and then there are names in this group uh, Cuvier, Blumenbach, Retzius, Comte de Buffon, and Edward Long. So when they're talking about the brain, they classify the eastern lobe of the brain as intuitive. The western lobe is reason. And yes, did you want (laughs) to? 
it, it's exactly the same stuff you hear with you know gender-based difference yeah yeah so they're doing the same thing they're 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 looking for the the emotionality and uh lack of intelligence of women at the same time as they're doing the racism yeah. uh james hunt uh talks about the premature closing of the cranium being uh characteristic of the lower breeds of mankind so they couldn't quite find uh head measurements <laughs> that uh proved what they wanted so then they started to say it must be the premature closing of the cranium or the thickness of the skull. So uh, or- Orwell talked about this. They all believed that, that white people had thinner skulls. Uh, and here's a quote from George Orwell. The thin skull was the mark of racial superiority. And the pith topi, which is a hat, a uh, pith sun helmet, um, was a sort of emblem of empire. So if you think about if you've ever like heard someone say, get it through your thick skull... <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. idea that a thick skull is uh makes you dumb is is from scientific racism um so there's yeah you were talking about israel the in the bible you know there's a whole the whole story that the that god gives various people's land to the to the chosen people of israel and uh so the English often would refer to this in literature, that they were the chosen people, that God was giving them all these other people's lands. Um, William Blake, famous poet, said, you know, the English chosen people will not rest until they built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Um, they go for looking for the missing link. In Punch magazine, they conclude the missing link between the gorilla and the N-word, uh, uh, black people, is the Irish, actually. So there's lots of anti-Irish racism uh, in the scientific <laughs> sense. Um, Disraeli, uh, Benjamin Disraeli, I guess, was prime minister um, during one of these periods of imperial expansion. Uh, and he had written a novel, Tancred. Um, and one of the characters, which in the which is voicing probably the views of the author. <laughs> uh, he says the historical success of England is, quote, an affair of race, a Saxon race protected by an insular position has stamped its diligent and methodic character on the century. And when a superior race with a superior order, idea to work and order advances, its state will be progressive. All is race. That's pretty <laughs> funny coming from Disraeli because he was given the section. Yeah. He's actually Jewish. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The zeal. The zeal. Just yeah. just the fact that they call themselves Anglo-Saxon. Yeah. D didn't the Normans come in and kick the asses of the Saxons? You're identifying with the losers. D didn't the Danes yeah. come in and, and kick your butts as well? And and you had Danish kings. And then you, you, you had Norman kings. And now you've got German kings kings you know if you're anglo-saxon you would be speaking saxon you'd be you'd be reading beowulf in the original but it all went wrong with the norman conquest according to these people yeah yeah uh, and we'll yeah we'll i'll get back to that things went wrong with including language <laughs> so I'll, I'll, tell, I'll tell you more about that later um so you know it becomes really genocidal pretty quickly in the sense that, you know, in Australia, for example, the superintendent of Van Diemen's, and we've heard many stories like this in uh, Canada, right? But Edward Kerr, after the 
Myall Creek Massacre, which I guess is pretty famous in Australia. Um, in 1838, uh, they killed 28 uh, indigenous villagers. And Edward Kerr says, it is in the order of nature that as civilization advances, savage nations must be exterminated. Um, read about that in a book called The Fatal Shore by Robert Hughes. But it's... um. Yeah, so that's that's a good reason to develop these doctrines, right? As imperialists, they're going around and doing all these things. So it's it if it so happens that this is the order of nature and you're naturally superior, and this is going to happen anyway. Again, I you suppose start that with might the make conclusion. We massacred <laughs> these people, and you know, God let this happen. Therefore, God approves, and this is the way things. Um, So there's uh, more scientific stuff. There's Francis Bacon. There's a guy named Lancelot Capability Brown, who is a gardener. (laughs) Good name, right? I like the name Capability. I like having capability in your name, but he's a gardener. So he's doing uh, genetics because he's working out the color of flowers. Uh, You know, if I cross this with this, then I can get a different color of flower. And then he thinks, wait a minute. If colors, if different ge- genetic bases lead to different colors of flowers, then it must also lead to different colors of people. So he goes there. Uh, you know, Mendel, of course, really systematized the the whole genetic um, basis for using peas, um, Darwin. Uh, but there's also Alexander von Humboldt, who I think is, the, there were two von Humboldts, and I frequently get them mixed up. One of them was more of a geographer and the other was more of a linguist. Um, I think this one is the geographer. One of them told uh, Bolivar that he wasn't going to amount to anything. <laughs> oh, <laughs> great <he> prediction. <laughs> we mentioned that in our uh, in our episode on Bolivar. <laughs> they Alexander, hung out at some salon. <laughs> Alexander was the geographer. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Alexander. Alexander, I think, spent time in, a lot of time in Latin America. So Alexander von Humboldt is, uh, you know, what I would definitely consider an anti-racist um, mm. for that time. But <laughs> here's 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 gold. Here's a quote uh, from Alexander von Humboldt in Gold, Gould, Stephen Jay Gould. Um, Whilst we maintain the unity of the human species, we at the same time repel the depressing assumption of superior and inferior races of men. There are nations more susceptible of cultivation than others, yawn, (laughs) grown, but none in themselves nobler than others. All are in like degree designed for freedom. So that's pretty good, right? Um, But then when he's talking about Arabs later on, he says the Arabs are a more highly gifted race with greater natural adaptability for mental cultivation. So he still kind of resorts to this. What is cultivation? (laughs) You know, civilization of culture? Yeah, I think so. I think it's like, you know, again, it's a garden, right? You're <laughs> better cultivated. Oh, no, not by, not by the 1840s, for sure. <laughs> wow. So uh, we've got, after Darwin is when we really start getting um, bad, really systematic stuff. Really bad. So we've got Gobineau. You want to do Gobineau? Oh, Joseph Arthur de Gobineau. Yeah, uh, he's an aristocrat, uh, a novelist a diplomat, and a travel writer, therefore eminently qualified to be a scientist. Now, he's an aristocratic elitist. 1848 really annoyed him. 
Uh, we talked before about reactions to the French Revolution. Well, he reacted to 1848. He took it almost personally. And it led him to write his famous essay on the inequality of the human races. So in this essay, he claims that aristocrats are superior to commoners and that they possessed more Aryan genetic traits because of less interbreeding with inferior races, uh, which included for him the Alpine and Mediterranean races. <laughs> which is, it's so interesting because they just classify, you know, they just reclassify and classify according yeah. to whatever they want to. Yeah. Now, Gobineau's writings were immediately attractive to uh, pro-slavery Americans, to white supremacists, uh, including, I think you're going to talk about Knott a little bit later, Josiah Knott and Henry Hotz, and they translated his essay into English. However, they omitted around a thousand pages from the original, uh, including the parts that described Americans as a racially mixed population. So, again, you know, selective use of the facts. And um, Gobineau had a, an enormous influence in Germany. Uh, he was very popular with uh, Wagner, the composer. I mean, after his music, he's most famous for his anti-Semitism. And Wagner's son-in-law, Houston Stewart Chamberlain, who had a big fan in a guy named Adolf Hitler. I mean, you could, there's a direct line from Gobineau yeah. to the Nazis. Sure. <clears throat> For sure. Yeah, so we've got um, other big names, Robert Knox, Charles Kingsley in Britain, uh, Knott, like you said, and Glidden in the U.S., and Karl Vogt, Vogt, Vogt in Germany, V-O-G-T. So these are all, um, yeah, I guess the reason I mention all these names is to say that, like, Gobineau in France, we've got like a real France, Germany, UK, US uh, intellectual, <laughs> you know, development of this discipline yeah. known as racism. <laughs> it's uh, it's multinational European. It's, you know, it's Western European. It's the most, you know, quote unquote, civilized countries that are doing this. It's Northwestern Europe. Yeah. Yeah, and, and if anybody the, who is really... not a Northwestern European criticizes any of this, the answer would be, "Well, of course you would say that. <laughs> you would say that." <laughs> so, um, I don't know if you know the story of Olauda Equiano, but Olauda Equiano was one of the, uh, you know, first black abolitionists. Uh, you know, was captured uh, as a slave, but then escaped. I think. Um, and, uh, so he became, you know, he had early, some of the earliest writings, uh, the, the autobiography was published in 1789. Uh, so well before, you know, people like, uh, Doug, Frederick Douglass, there was Olauda Equiano and, um, Equiano had a friend, Blumenbach, um, who <laughs> the Wikipedia ent entry on Blumenbach is amazing, Dave. Uh, it says something, Johann Friedrich Blumenbach, and it says something like, while today he would be called a race, no, while he would, he could be considered a racist, today he would be considered an anti-racist or something. <laughs> it's really good. Um, but anyway, 
he's uh you know lots of anthropology zoology but then it says he was also important as a race theorist so it's all about again classifications um for distinct races and then he he's the one who coins the term uh caucasian and his justification for this uh, the idea that caucasian is you know the the key to white white the white race is that he concluded based on his scientific analysis that noah's ark landed <laughs> in the caucasus so therefore you know, caucasian <laughs> like again you're going to trace your lineage right back to the sons of noah doesn't that make you jews <laughs> and aren't you anti-semites god uh, then there's Houston Stewart Chamberlain, yeah, um, Hitler's 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 John the Baptist. They call yeah. him on Wikipedia. Yeah, pretty much. So he's the, he's got the theory of vital force. Uh, he's got the Aryan race, the anti-Semitism. Yeah, yeah, he's kind of a big deal for the in terms of the whole racism thing. Uh, so yeah, what I wanted, the other thing that's fascinating about this period, and I think we'll just go through the fields is that at the same time as we have scientific racism as, you know, like ubiquitously accepted among educated people, this was educated people who knew their science knew about the science of quote unquote race. And they understood about the superiority of their race and the inferiority of other races. And this is happening at the same time as most of the social sciences that we know today are being invented. So every social science that we have today was invented at a time of like open scientific racism. So they all have really early... <laughs> racism just built in so criminology is one of my favorites uh lombroso mm -hmm. uh being one of the big theorists who's still taught in criminology today uh well, the, his theory oh go ahead the, yeah the, i mean the idea was coming from i, I guess a, a reasonable place the what they wanted to do is determine whether you could predict criminal behavior they were looking for the roots of criminal behavior how do we deal with it? Well, there are theories now that, you know, maybe if you built more community centers and, you know, yeah, minimum, higher minimum wage, help. but yeah. they, they were trying to predict it based on the shape of skulls. Yeah. So he had a theory of degeneracy, degenerate races that influenced Mussolini. He coined the term criminology, Lombroso did. Yeah. Um, and he actually thought that there was a connection between genius and degeneracy. <laughs> so he had some idiosyncratic theories, but he thought that, you know, really smart people were kind of had to be somewhat degenerate. <laughs> so he met uh, Tolstoy, the famous Russian writer in 1897, and he asked if he could examine his head. And uh, the the thing I read said that that did not go well. I don't know what the details were, <laughs> but but I can imagine going up to someone famous at a conference and saying, "Hey, I think you're degenerate. Could I measure your skull?" <laughs> anyway, um, then there's August Vollmer, who I think we mentioned in our police uh, episode. Um, who was a counterinsurgency commander in the Philippines, which we'll get to. Uh, 
not in not too many episodes, uh, the U.S. and the Philippines. But he came back to the U.S. and founded the criminal justice at program at the University of California. He created scientific criminology, wrote a textbook, and was also very concerned with racial degeneration. Now, in case this stuff sounds crazy, which it it, <laughs> it does, should. <laughs> Uh, Lombroso was uh, the Bible for police departments, or, you know, around the world for decades. Yeah, they put a lot of study into this. There are mugshots, photographs of uh, uh, people. Not just they didn't just photograph uh, criminals; they photographed people and you know posted them <laughs> in police department walls to say, you know, watch out for this type of head shape. Yeah, this yeah. is a counterfeiter. Oh. You know what they discovered? <laughs> so they were trying to create average. Uh, I mean, they were trying to cr- figure out what the criminal face was, right? Yep. They were trying to figure out what the criminal face was. So I learned this in Robert Sapolsky. I was listening to Robert Sapolsky's lecture. He's a Stanford behavioral biology uh, professor. Really, really good stuff. Highly recommend. But Sapolsky was saying that early studies of this under this kind of racial criminology regime, they tried to create average faces. So they would take like all the a whole bunch of criminals faces and do some you know 19th century version of photo uh photoshop where they would kind of <laughs> average them out and then the cra- the crazy thing is when you average out a whole bunch of faces the result is actually someone that's really good looking for some reason the sim- the the way that it averages out is people really find these faces really good looking so time after time they would create this composite face out of a hundred you know murderers faces and people would be like oh that's a that's a handsome guy (laughs) (laughs) nice so uh sociology uh phrenology because phrenology because craniometry leads to phrenology which is slightly different this isn't just measuring the skull this is studying the bumps and and uh well, the shape of the skull, and that determines your personality. Right. Great. <laughs> uh, Weber, Maximilian Weber, Max Weber. Um, I know about him because of the Protestant work ethic, but that, I suppose he wrote a whole lot more than that, right? Yeah, he did. Uh, he was a, a sociologist, a historian, a jurist, and a political economist. He, he basically gets credit for inventing sociology, even though he didn't see himself that way. He, he thought of himself as a, a historian. But he's considered among the most important theorists on the development of modern Western society. And his ideas influenced uh, social theory and social research. So along with uh, Auguste Comte and Emile Durkheim, he's one of the fathers of sociology. Um, he did not believe in monocausal explanations. So as a historian, we we have to thank him for that. Basically, things that happen don't have a single cause, usually. So he he said, look for the multiple causes. Uh, I didn't know this, but he helped to form the German Republic after World War I. And topically for today, he uh, died of the Spanish flu. Oh yeah. I didn't I didn't know this stuff very well in university. I just remembered the Weber thesis which I thought was ludicrous. But so according to him, it's the Protestant work ethic that underlies capitalism and 
those are the reasons why Northwest Europe progressed so much further than Southern Catholic <laughs> Europe. Okay. And then he did comparative studies of religions. He studied Judaism, uh, Chinese, and Indian religion. Well, can I quote Gunder Frank about this religious study Go that right Weber ahead. undertook? So under Gunder Frank in the book Reorient, which I really like, and I'm going to mention again a little later in this uh, study of racism, but Gunder Frank says, Weber went to the trouble to study various major world religions and concluded that all of them had an essential mythical, mystic, magical, in a word, anti-rational component, which necessarily handicapped all their true believers in coming to grips with reality rationally, unlike the Europeans. Only the latter were the beneficiaries of the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. Yeah, greed. Starting with the conclusion again. <laughs> yeah, and, and to me, this sounded very much like the earlier theory that you mentioned that, uh, you know, the, uh, the South is too hot and those people are lazy, whereas, you know, we Northerners with our bracing cold have to be more active. And I just... <laughs> You know, even Bertrand Russell said something like that. He said something like about how the Eastern, you know, mystic religions and stuff and meditation. He's like, it's probably because you can just sit outside and meditate, but in the cold, you have to move around or something. Yeah. Whereas if you read, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> ancient Greece, yeah, the, the, the things that they invented you know, uh, theater, uh, democracy, right. like all of these incredible achievements are often credited to the fact that they were outside talking to each other all the time mm -hmm. because the weather was so conducive, you know, so. <laughs> so it's facts. not only is there not monocausal explanation, it's like uh, you can explain anything <laughs> with the same variables. It's well, good, and it's, the, and it's good that it's hot. It's bad that it's hot. It's good to be. Well, it's good that it's hot for the Greeks, but <laughs> it has a bad effect on non-Europeans. So um, another sociology, I guess this is sociology or political something, but there's this theory of Oriental despotism. So remember when we talked about China and we talked about early views of China, like 18th century, uh, we mentioned that they really thought China was more advanced and they, you know, the French physiocrats thought Oriental despotism was cool. They were like, we need to do that. Um, but uh, in, in the 19th century, there's a guy named Wittfogel who follows on Weber um, and writes about Oriental despotism later. Oh, it's the 20th century. Sorry. Um, and he, he basically says that Oriental countries were despotic because they had this uh, control of the water <laughs> hydraulic bureaucracies he called them so if you control water supplies through canals then you basically create a despotic country <laughs> wow uh, which yeah I think I think still has some influence wow um, and then we have uh, the field which today is called international relations but uh, back in the day was called race development <laughs> that's right oh. friends foreign affairs magazine uh, which still exists today was originally called the journal of race development um and uh you know published such articles as um you know and it published it wasn't always um 
it wasn't always racist in the sense of ranking races per se, but it was racist in the sense of, you know, really believing that there were these different races. But, you know, they published W.E.B. Du Bois um, on the culture of white folk. It was an article in 1917. Uh, Ellsworth Huntington, the adaptability of the white man to tropical America, uh, 1914. Um, Sander, Sander Singh. 1916, The Hindu in Canada. Uh, A.F. Chamberlain, uh, 1911, The Contribution of the Negro to Human Civilization. These are all articles in the former Journal of Race Development, now Foreign Affairs. And then we have uh, Anthropology. So, by the way, um, that wasn't... Gobineau's textbook didn't stand un undisputed. Uh, there was a Haitian anthropologist named Antonor Fermin. I don't know if I mentioned him before, but he wrote a book directly challenging Gobineau called On the Equality of Human Races um, to refute Gobineau. And this was also 19th century, but a little bit later. And then we have uh, on in the anthropology, we have Gustave Le Bon, who wrote a book about the um, crowds, the psychology of crowds, and yeah. basically how you could control <clears throat> crowds of people through um, appealing to their emotions. And uh, this was very important because the 19th century, remember, is when more and more Europeans are getting the vote. So as more and more Europeans get the vote, the ruling classes are very interested in how to control them. So they vote uh, not socialist and vote the way they're supposed to. Yeah. Or, or preventing them from getting the vote if possible. Yeah, using... but once that train is, you know, once that train is moving and they, they know that it, it, they're not going to win that fight, um, they start yeah, but then getting they can, into PR. They yeah. can triple lock the door to make sure women don't get the vote. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Le Bon's an, an incredible character. So most of the craniometrists were busy trying to prove the inferiority of non-white races. Le Bon was very happy to take his work to denigrate women and to, he was actually not fighting directly against the vote, but he was fighting against gender equal education. So from his book, here's a lovely quotation. There are a large number of women whose brains are closer in size to those of gorillas than to the most developed male brains. This is in 1879. And, and the essay was basically arguing against sending women to school. This inferiority, he wrote, is so obvious that no one can contest it for a moment. A desire to give them the same education and to pose the same goals for them is a dangerous chimera. And then why crowds become angry mobs? And, and his answer was that the crowd mind was contagious just like a bacterial disease. It causes rebellion and turns men into beasts. The catalyst for such mass contempt is education. Oh. Democratic ideas about public education are in profound disagreement with the results of psychology and experience. The French system of education transforms the majority who have undergone it into enemies of society. So <clears throat> at the Colonial Congress, Le Bon hypothesized that Western education would turn, you know, the non-white colonized people into enemies. 
and he applied the same belief to France and to the uh, middle class. And, you know, all of the uh, rationalizations for his arguments are just garbage. And uh, unfortunately, he had a tremendous influence on a number of people. Theodore Roosevelt had a copy of Le Bon's book by his bedside. Yeah, Sigmund Freud picked up one. Le Bon's crowd theories in his uh, 1921 book on group psychology. Benito Mussolini claimed that he had read all of Le Bon's work and uh, maybe even considered Le Bon as one of his mentors. And <laughs> even Maria Montessori, who believed the exact opposite of Le Bon, women's right to education, she was measuring her students' skulls to forecast oh, their Maria. intelligence. Oh, Maria. A2? A2, Maria Montessori? <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh man. No, I love Montessori. <clears throat> Montessori is an amazing story. She was I think like the first uh woman to be to finish her education as a medical doctor, but then they wouldn't let her work as a medical doctor, so she ended up caring for children and she just kept building these scientific apparatus to help the children learn and you know, experimented and developed these ideas of like when children can do what. Imagine, yeah, it's it's amazing stuff. I've I've read a lot of Montessori. Montessori's helped me understand children uh, a lot. So and in fact, her, you're giving her a pass on the measuring skulls. <laughs> I guess I'm gonna start measuring skulls now. <laughs> if Montessori did it, how could she be wrong? No, I, I don't think she gets a pass. But yeah, I mean, it's it's the ubiquity of it, right? Is amazing. Um, so. You know what I learned? Uh, when, when I wrote an article once, uh, and it was it went through like a heavy editing process that I didn't like. I'm not gonna say who edited it or what, but when they published it, they introduced this word "middle brow" <laughs> that I had never put in there. Uh, and I, oh, then I geez. looked it up. I was like, "What? Have, what is it they've done?" And then, so this comes from highbrow and lowbrow. Right. So highbrow is like really sophisticated art, and lowbrow is you know poop jokes and scatology, whatever. But this is craniometry too. So, you know, if you're the height of your brow on your head tells you how evolved uh, and, you know, you are racially. So if you've ever used the term highbrow or lowbrow, if you've ever used the term get it through your thick skull, <laughs> you've, uh, you've just unwittingly used words from uh, craniometry. Um. There's also Lucien Levy Brule who in the 1920s who wrote uh, a, that basically this is trying to explain why um, you know uh, Europe was so successful in uh, taking uh, America away from na na indigenous people, and so the argument is that they were in a pre-logical mentality that uh, people evolved <laughs> towards logic and reason, oh. and uh, they were trapped in this pre-logical mentality. Um, we've said a lot about economics. Uh, I think in the last episode, I talked about Malthus and his debate with Ricardo and how Malthus didn't even really necessarily mean what he was saying. He was just working for the landlords. But he had this thing about how people will just eat themselves to death, which is, you know, today's population debates. <laughs> I mean, today's population debates are funny because there are people there are, you know, liberal. I don't know what to call, I don't want to. 
I don't want to get sued or anything, but <laughs> let's say that there are people in the Malthusian tradition who also think that America should have a higher population and Canada should have a higher population. So there's a lot of demographic engineering that still people believe in. Um, but even in terms of if you get away from Malthusianism, economics is still, uh, you know, kind of kind of racist. Um, even Marx had this thing of the Asiatic mode of production and bought into the Oriental despotism, used a lot of terms like trapped in history, ossified civilization, stupid people, stupefied, whatever. Um, there's another guy who later becomes a Nazi, Werner Sombart, the triumph of the West uh, because of rationality. Oh, um, so he became a Nazi for the rationality. For all that, ra- so so much rationality. <laughs> you know, yeah, when we do, uh, when we eventually get to World War II, I just discovered a book about, just specifically about the Nazis and their all their mysticism. Yep. Uh, what's it called? We'll have, we'll have to check that out. But, uh, but even without the mysticism, they are anti-rational. Yeah. Eric Kurlander, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they, I mean, monsters and stuff. <laughs> so then political, let's move on to political science. Uh, founded at Columbia University by John William Bur- Burgess, Burgess, uh, who's, who's, main reason for trying to create political science as a field was to figure out how to defeat reconstruction. Oh yeah. Good. A worthy cause. And, uh, and you know what? He succeeded because <laughs> they figured it out. Um, he had, he, his was the Teutonic stuff. So it's a Teutonic germ theory. So the, the English and American and German, they're all, they're all descended from democratic traditions forged in the forests of Germany. Um, And he Uh believed, quote, that the U.S. has a duty to, quote, share its civilization with other peoples, sometimes even as a forced gift. (laughs) Wow. So uh, what about, what about, let's get really quantitative, Dave. What about, let's Uh, talk statistics. You know, This is just awful because statistics are basically eugenics <laughs> with a little bit of biology thrown in. This is the, the uh, brainchild of Francis Galton, Darwin's cousin. So he was, uh, he's one of these polymaths. He's a statistician, sociologist, psychologist, anthropologist, Tropical explorer, geographer, inventor, meteorologist, uh, psychometrician, whatever that is, and of course, eugenicist. Well, psychometrician means IQ testing, so it's not. It's basically eugenics and statistics. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason he invented statistics was to prove his, you know, eugenics theories. The whole reason for statistics is to measure differences between the races and between the classes. So you start with, you know, the upper class is superior. Let's find the evidence. So let's, you know, count this. Let's test this. Let's look at these factors. And then, oh, there it is. You know, the differences we were looking for. So you start with the conclusion and and just go find the proof. And anything that doesn't fit, 
your conclusion is, you know, just put in the trash paper <laughs> and move on. So he my, friend, my, my friend Manuel, who's been a guest on this podcast, he says, like, basically what status, statisticians are torturers. They basically torture the data until it gives them the, the answer they're looking for. Okay, so this guy Galton, he said that statistics were impartial that statisticians were impartial. The, the, the numbers do not lie, which, of course, is garbage because you're choosing the numbers. You, you're choosing <laughs> the question and then finding the numbers that you want. But, but well, he, here's one I heard. I heard lie, figures don't lie, but liars figure. <laughs> well, and there's the ever popular, there are lies, damn lies, and statistics. And statistics, yeah. But he was enormously influential. He produced over 340 papers and books. He was knighted in 1909. This is a big deal, this guy. He created uh, the statistical concept of correlation and regression toward the mean. These are his original ideas, and statisticians applied them for over a century, quite happily. But he was applying statistical methods to the study of human differences to the inheritance of intelligence, and he was the first to use questionnaires and surveys for collecting data on, you know, uh, communities, which he needed for his genealogical and biographical works and for his statistical studies. So he actually coined the term eugenics himself in 1883. He is also the first person to say nature versus nurture. That's how pervasive and long-lasting these ideas were. So he wrote a book in 1869 called Hereditary Genius. He was studying genius and greatness. So he uh, added up all of these famous people in various walks of life, uh, especially if they also had famous relatives. And he was trying to predict how strongly natural ability could be expected to run in families. Predictably, he went in racist directions. So one of the chapters in his book is called The Comparative Worth of Different Races. And he assessed that the average intellectual standard of the uh, N-word race is some two grades below our own. And he attributed this to hereditary. He just basically hated Africans. He called them lazy, palavering savages. And he wrote a letter to the Times of London advocating that the coast of Africa be given to Chinese colonists so that they might supplant the inferior race. Wow. You know what I just realized? I didn't know that Galton was into this genius stuff, yeah. but Carlyle, right? Thomas Carlyle, remember, yeah. uh, who was a big uh, you know, defender of the Morant Bay the guy who massacred people in Jamaica, the governor. And he also was a... What what was the guy's name? Kingsley. You mentioned him before. Another pseudoscientist. Right, right. So so Carlyle was the proponent of the great man theory of history, right? So I think it's 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 very interesting that the that this connection between like looking for genius and uh, racism seems to go together. So um, another thing that Galton looked at was whether uh, women were hot or not. Like you think 
people may not people who have seen the movie The Social Network may remember that Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, before he created Facebook, uh, created a software for college students at Harvard to assess whether their female colleagues were hot or not, and they would rate them and then the rankings would go up or down, whatever. So um, you thought that was invented by Zuckerberg in the early 2000s, but in fact, Galton had his own system for doing this. So uh, Stephen Jay Gould quotes a passage from Galton. Whenever I have occasion to classify the persons I meet into three classes, good, medium, bad, uh, he means looks, by the way, um, I use a needle mounted as a pricker whereby with to prick holes unseen in a piece of paper torn rudely into a cross with a long leg. I use its upper end for good, the cross arm for medium, the lower end for bad. The holes keep distinct and are easily read off at leisure. The object, place, and date are written on the paper. I use this plan for my beauty data, classifying the girls I passed in the streets or elsewhere as attractive, indifferent, or repellent. Of course, this was a purely individual estimate, but it was consistent, judging from the conformity of different attempts in the same population. I found London to rank highest for beauty, Aberdeen lowest. <laughs> oh, now you're hurting my feelings. Uh, yeah, but you know these people are really something. Anyway, so Gould uh, Gould kind of summarizes what's going on here um, really well in his book, The Mismeasure of Man, which is very good in terms of like understanding how scientifically minded people come up to come up to these. <laughs> atrocious conclusions so he says numbers and graphs do not gain authority from increasing precision of measurement sample size or complexity and manipulation basic experimental designs may be flawed and not subject to correction by extended repetition prior commitment to one among many potential conclusions often guarantees a serious flaw in design um, another one of these eugenicists uh, paul broca he was also one of the most influential uh, Broca says the following. In general, the brain is larger in mature adults than in the elderly, in men than in women, in eminent men than in men of mediocre talent, in superior races than in inferior races. He also has this to say about faces. A prognath prognathous, forward jutting face, more or less black color of skin, woolly hair, and intellectual social inferiority are often associated, while more or less white skin, straight hair, and an orthognathous face are the ordinary equipment of the highest groups in the human series. A group with black skin, woolly hair, and a prognathous face has never been able to raise itself spontaneously to civilization. And I'll say more about that later, because that has some effect on the study of history, unfortunately. Um, uh, he's criticizing... What's fascinating is how these guys criticize uh, more egalitarian-minded people. They basically just say they're unscientific. So there's a guy named Tiedemann who has a different belief. He doesn't believe in brain sizes mattering. And Broca says, unhappily, he was dominated by a preconceived idea. He set out to prove... <laughs> <laughs> he set out to prove that the cranial capacity of all human races is the same, but it's an axiom of all observational sciences that facts must precede theories. Oh, man. <laughs> so again, Gould concludes about him. His facts were unreliable, or his facts were reliable, but they were gathered selectively and then manipulated unconsciously in the service of prior conclusions. By this route, the conclusions achieved 
not only the blessing of science, but the prestige of numbers. Broca and his school used facts as illustrations, not as constraining documents. They began with conclusions, peered through their facts, and yep. came back in a circle to the same conclusions. And then we have the person who invented R-squared, which I can tell you is still uh, used every in every scientific, uh, you know, you can pop open any scientific paper now. Yeah. And people will ask, what's the R? What's the R-squared? And that comes from this guy. Yeah, Carl Pearson. Uh, he's another statistician, uh, a, a uh, follower of Galton. Uh, and a eugenicist, of course. So he's primarily recognized as having created mathematical statistics. He was uh, a driven and prolific scholar on many subjects. He graduated from Cambridge, studied physics, philosophy, law, literature, history, and political science, and then became a uh, professor of applied mathematics at University College London. That's where Galton uh, worked, University College London, and we'll mention it again later. Uh, so he became uh, a follower of Galton's ideas, and the two guys knew each other, and they collaborated fruitfully for years. Pearson referred to eugenics as the directed and self-conscious evolution of the human race. And he called Galton a prophet. His... <laughs> So Pearson had, I mean, even by the standard of these crazy racist ideas, he had extreme political views and eugenics and statistics gave him the language to advance these positions. So he gave uh, a speech in 1900 called National Life from the Standpoint of Science. And here's what he said. My view, and I think it may be called the scientific view of a nation is that of an organized whole, kept up to a high pitch of internal efficiency by ensuring that its numbers are substantially recruited from the better stocks and kept to a high pitch of external efficiency by contest, chiefly by way of war with inferior races. So first of all, you have to have a breeding program. And second, you have to constantly be at war uh, you know, to maintain that high pitch of efficiency. So according to Pearson, conflict between races was inevitable, but also desirable because it helped weed out the bad stock. History wow. shows me one way and one way only in which a high state of civilization has been produced, namely the struggle of race with race and the survival of the physically and mentally fitter race. Wow. This is the guy who considered, well, he's not the guy, but he sure had a lot to say about it. He considered the colonial genocide in America to be a great triumph. Huh. His words, in place of the red man contributing practically nothing to the work and thought of the world, we have a great nation, mistress of many arts, able to contribute much to the common stock of civilized man. Wow. Now, he knew that this would sound as awful as it does, uh, in his words, inhumane. So he wrote in a book called The Grammar of Science, 
It is a false view of human solidarity, a weak humanitarianism, not a true humanism, which regrets that a capable and stalwart race of white men should replace a dark-skinned tribe which can neither utilize its land for the full benefit of mankind nor contribute its quota to the common stock of human knowledge. That's always their posture, eh? It's like, you know, I I don't like I don't like this any more than you do. It's just this is the truth. These are the facts, you know? This is they're they're speakers of these hard truths that happen to coincide with maximum and, convenience for them. And I think he saw the future a little bit. He was he was crying out a warning to Britain. We are literally forced, he said, to the general conclusion that we inherit our parents' tempers, our parents' conscientiousness, shyness, and ability, even as we inherit their stature, forearm, and span. British stock, he said, was failing to keep pace with that of America and Germany. Uh oh. Intelligence can be aided and trained, but no training or education can create it. You must breed it. <laughs> that is the broad result for statecraft, which flows from the equality and inheritance of the psychical and physical characters in man. Oh, wow. He's, yeah, yeah he, wow, wow. <laughs> he he uh, did a study on... Um, Jewish children. And in it, he wrote, we believe there's no institution more capable of impartial statistical inquiry than the Galton Laboratory. We have no access to grind. We no. have no governing body to propitiate by well-advertised discoveries. We are paid by nobody to reach results of a given bias. We firmly believe that we have no political, no religious, and no social prejudices because we find ourselves abused incidentally by each group and organ in turn. We rejoice in numbers and figures for their own stake, and subject to human fallibility, collect our data, as all scientists must do, to find out the truth that is in them. So this is a guy who gave eugenics, uh, you know, just by layering on this thick coat of statistics, he made eugenics look like mathematical fact. He made it yeah. really hard to refute. If you want to criticize his conclusions, you have to wade through hundreds of pages of formulas and, and technical jargon and garbage. Which is what economists do now too, right? I mean, it's very yeah. similar. It's like very highly interested uh, conclusions with yeah. really arcane formulas that don't turn out to be mathematically meaningful or scientifically meaningful yeah yeah and my last quote from pearson from the standpoint of the nation we want to inculcate a feeling of shame in the parents of a weakling whether it be mentally or physically unfit ah there's another there's another connection i've just made which is the, these guys are all anti-education, right? Galton doesn't want to educate women. Pearson doesn't want to doesn't think education matters. I mean, a lot of no. what they're saying is, you know, talent is inherent, so don't bother educating people. Yeah, it it's. Uh, I mean, it's definitely race, but it's also definitely class. Yeah, exactly, exactly.
Yeah. Then we get to the third member of the, the unholy <laughs> trinity. Uh, Ronald Fisher. So he's a little later. He's a 20th century guy, basically. Uh, he died in 1962. <laughs> in 2011, Richard Dawkins called Fisher the greatest biologist since Darwin. Oh, God. Dawkins. <laughs> Uh, I I wrote an article about Dawkins and dog breeding. I think I mentioned it in the last episode. But uh, rather than mentioning that uh, again, let's just let me just say that when Dawkins was first coming up, there's a philosopher named Mary Midgley. <laughs> so very good, uh, and she writes about animal consciousness and stuff. And she critiqued Dawkins because she was like, "This whole selfish gene stuff is just a bunch of Thatcherite." you know thatcherite economics like uh, applied to to biology um and she she said something like and i you probably know this expression but she said you know i would write about it more but it's basically like breaking a butterfly on a wheel or <laughs> <laughs> like nice he's, he's so pathetic that you know it's not even worth it for her so that's where uh, that's where Dawkins fits. I mean, the, here's the other thing though about Dawkins, because there is one thing about Dawkins that I think um, I never saw anywhere else. So it could be him that came up with it. But Dawkins is known now as not an anti-Islam activist per se, but he claims that it's about uh, religion itself. So he says religion is bad and irrational and whatever. Um, and the the reason he, his kind of disproof of God is he says, look, if you're looking for um, God by looking at the complexity of life and life forms, well, evolution can create more complexity than intelligence can. And that I thought was pretty clever. But it's it's ironic that then he he likes eugenics, which you know it's like so you're trying to say human intelligence can create better than than natural selection, which uh, you've you've proved it can't. You you're trying to prove that God can't do this, but you're saying Englishmen can do this. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, he was a big fan of Fisher. Fisher is the third great uh, racist eugenicist statistician. In 1950, UNESCO was preparing a statement on the race question, and he was a dissenting voice. So he said... <laughs> Standing available... up to the UN. <laughs> yeah, how dare Way they? to go, buddy. <laughs> Available scientific knowledge provides a firm basis for believing that the groups of mankind differ in their innate capacity for intellectual and emotional development. Hmm. Would it surprise you to know that he was the Galton Professor of Eugenics <laughs> at University College London? Galton Professor of Eugenics. University and he was College the editor London. of the Annals of Eugenics. So he claimed that higher fertility rates among the lower classes would bring down any civilization, including the British Empire. So he proposed a system of limits and disincentives against large families of low social status or immigrants. Mm. So 
by this, See, this time, is my one. Well, I should say my cons. I have one. I have a concern about the environmental movement in that sense. Like when when I hear environmentalists talking about, uh, you know, too much population, I I am a little bit skeptical in the sense that I wonder how much of it is, you know, based on analysis of the Earth and its resources and other species, and how much of it is just absorbed from this stuff. Mm. You know. So, so uh, by by Fisher's time, this is early twentieth century. Uh, eugenics, actually, it's post World War One. Uh, eugenics was gaining momentum as part of uh, larger programs for social reform. Uh, there was pretty fierce resistance, mainly from religious groups, and they never really achieved prominence uh, in Britain, but uh, British eugenicists, uh, eugenicists pardon me, did succeed at turning a few of their ideas into reality, uh, most notably restrictions on immigration, and there was one incredibly awful uh, domestic policy, the Mental Deficiency Act of 1913, which made it so that anyone who was deemed feeble-minded or morally defective Ooh. could could be committed to an institution against their will. So the standards for these things were uh, incredibly vague. And at one time, there was over 65,000 people living in state-operated institutions, which were called colonies. In the, in the UK? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Uh, G.K. Chesterton was one of the big opponents of it. He he wrote a, I think a, a, a pamphlet or a book called Eugenics and Other Evils. What's Chesterton famous for? Uh, Chesterton's a, a a writer. He wrote the Father Brown mysteries, but okay. he's also uh, I think a, a philosopher. Really okay. interesting character. Would you be surprised to know that Galton's movement spread to the United States? <laughs> well, I would I would think it would not find any sympathetic proponents over there. Charles Davenport, Harvard professor, uh, co-editor of Biometrica. He hmm. learned about eugenics directly from Galton and Pearson. And in 1910, he founded the Eugenics Record Office in uh, Cold Spring Harbor, New York. And like Galton's laboratory, started collecting data on the social and physical traits from hundreds of thousands of individuals. So using Galton and Pearson's techniques, he wrote uh, numerous publications about the dangers of interracial marriage <laughs> and immigration from countries of inferior stock. There you go, stock he again. He founded the Galton Society of America uh, just a, an organization of eugenicists, uh, and they used their power to direct American research in the 20s and 30s, and they lobbied successfully for measures like marriage prohibition, restrictions on immigration, forced sterilization of the mentally ill and physically disabled, and basically anyone else that they deemed a drain on society. So this whole stock thing, I yep. mean, it's 
people talked about stock when they were talking about animals, horses, I gather. Yep. It's a lot to do with the dogs, but uh, that was probably for hundreds of years. But it's it's I it, the interesting thing is like it does it's it's this science that leads to thinking of human beings as animals. <laughs> <laughs> it takes this kind of science to think of human beings as stock, as breeding stock. Yeah. So, 1930, interesting date. Fisher and the other members of the British Eugenics Society formed the Committee for Legalizing Eugenic Sterilization. Oh, that's a good committee to be associated with. Yep. They produced a propaganda pamphlet arguing the benefits of sterilizing feeble-minded, high-grade defectives. Lovely language. And Fisher yeah. contributed a, a statistical analysis to support their argument uh, based on data collected by his American friends. Mm. And, uh, yeah. So to strengthen their arguments with additional data, the society reached out to Ernst Rudin, a oh. Nazi eugenicist. <laughs> there you go. And one of the chief contributors to the pseudoscientific garbage justification for, you know, uh, <laughs> Nazi Hitler's. Yeah. There you go. Rudin expressed his admiration for the work of Fisher's committee. And uh, yeah, Fisher continued to have close ties, disturbingly close ties to Nazi scientists even after the war. He made a public statement to help rehabilitate uh, Ottmar Freiherr von Verschur, a Nazi geneticist, advocate of racial hygiene, and a mentor to Joseph Mengele. If you're not familiar with that name, he was the uh, doctor at Auschwitz who conducted some of the most barbaric experiments on concentration camp prisoners that you, you can imagine. In defense of von Verschur, Fischer wrote, I have no doubt that the party, sincere, Nazi party, sincerely wished to benefit the German racial stock, especially by the elimination of manifest defectives, such as those deficient mentally. And I do not doubt that von Verschur gave, as <laughs> I should have done, his support to such a movement. <laughs> That's some defense. <laughs> yeah, I would have done the with same defense, thing. With defenders like these. <laughs> uh, yeah. No, he really did. He really did want to kill defective people. <laughs> yeah. Mm, now, in okay. uh, we've mentioned University College London several times. This is where Galton basically lived and where Pearson and Fisher in turn presided. In 2018... University College London hosted a conference, the London Conference on Intelligence. It was a gathering of race scientists and neo-Nazis. The location they chose was no fluke. <laughs> they, you know, that's ground zero for these, these guys. Uh, that really lit a fire, and students at University College London began trying to get Galton... Pearson and Fisher's names removed from everything. You know, the, yeah. the, na the buildings are named after them. There's the, uh, the Fisher Prize. There's the Galton Chair of this. and <laughs> Yeah, 
Yeah, cancel those guys. <laughs> Where's cancel culture when you need it? Yeah. I don't know <laughs> if they have statues to them, but... Oh, goodness. So, yeah, anything else you wanted to say about statistics? Um, no, just a reminder. Statistics are not impartial and neither are statisticians well it's funny because yeah in most universities around here probably in the states too statistics is not taught with well there is a a lot of statistics are taught uh in psychology departments (laughs) so that connection is there but for the most part i think they're taught in mathematics departments so it's um you know, the origins are definitely uh, not probably known or understood by most of the people who use these things, Yeah, who use these tools. And same with biology, like uh, genetics, eugenics, statistics, they were not separate at all. They were not seen as separate at all. And I, I, you know, I have a friend who works in biology. I won't, again, say who it is, but they were saying that most biologists that they work with are eugenicists, like today. Like it's not, there hasn't, there hasn't been a, you know, (laughs) there hasn't been like a moment where they sat down and said, you know, let's, let's clean up our discipline of this kind of thinking. Um, And, you know, there are lots of people that you wouldn't think uh, would have been eugenicists, including people on the left. So for example, Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist, uh, wrote, um, you know, an indiscriminate and incessant breeding on the part of the overworked and underfed masses has resulted in an increase of defective, crippled, and unfortunate children. So it's sort of a pity that she had, but it's still kind of a eugenic way of thinking. Uh, John Maynard Keynes, who, you know, I respected a little more <laughs> as an economist before I knew this, was a member, proud member of the British Eugenic Society and said really? that... Yeah, almost any measures seem to me justified in order to protect our standard of life from injury at the hands of the more prolific races. Some definite parceling out of the world may well become necessary. I suppose this may not improbably provoke racial wars. At any rate, such wars will be about a substantial issue. Like at least we'll be fighting for something worthwhile. Wow. Yeah, I know. This is very upsetting for me. (laughs) that's that's a whole other level than marx's stupid comments about you know asian societies being frozen or whatever um yeah so that's it's back to marx for me dave (laughs) i was i was trying to trying to get into this cane stuff but (laughs) this is a real turnoff um so psychology um you know the iq test uh you know invented by Binet and then becomes the Stanford Binet uh, brought to the U.S. by Carl Brigham uh, in his 1916 thesis. Uh, He was trying to test uh, ability in the army. Um, He does a study of American intelligence where he concludes that intelligence comes from the Nordic races, not the inferior Alpine, Mediterranean, and uh, N-word black races. Um, The American Eugenic Society, that's Carl Brigham. So psychology, I, yeah, psychometrics. IQ tests, are, I, yeah. IQ tests are pretty thoroughly discredited, aren't they? Well, <laughs> they all they they come they sneak back in. I mean, in a, in a lot of ways, the SAT is an IQ test. You know, there's a belief yeah. that you can you can measure intelligence, and that one of the ways that people try to justify IQ tests now is they say, you know, 
um, if you you lose IQ points if you drink lead or whatever, so that means it's something real. But it doesn't. You'd lose uh, you'd lose points on any school test you take, right? I mean, it's just measuring a test. It's a test. Tests. If you read if you read the questions beforehand, you'll do better. <laughs> you know, there's no magic in an IQ test. Um, yeah, but, basically, it yeah. measures how good you are at taking IQ tests. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Whatever the specific and and IQ tests are not, um, <laughs> they're not. They don't measure something that you haven't learned. Like the the mysticism of IQ testing is that you can measure some ability prior to learning something. So it's not the same as a history test, because if you read your history beforehand, you'll do better on the test. But that's true of IQ testing, too. It just it's just a question of how you came to that to that knowledge. Right. Right. Anyway, IQ testing. Yeah, <laughs> I wish it was more discredited than it is. A lot of these ideas go that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> geography you know i think you have a point uh, the mercator projection you know makes the north much bigger than the south you you know you can make the argument that that's uh that's a navigational it's a navigational thing but uh i guess it depends where the center of the world is the the thing about um geography though is that it is kind of like about exploring so that you can colonize places right that's oh, kind yeah, of yeah. basically what geography is about. So the golden age of geography is definitely like British colonialists exploring everything and mapping everything so they can take over the well, world. There's, a, there's an earlier golden age of, of exploration in the 1500s, right? After yeah. Columbus struck it rich, everybody else is going around looking for yeah. the, the quick route to China or, uh, you know, pillage <laughs> another... Uh, Another mountain of gold. Yeah. Um, so, but the but Gunder Frank said something in Reorient that I really liked, where he said, you know, basically, how come Europe is a continent when in fact it's basically a peninsula, <laughs> and India is a subcontinent, <laughs> and China is a country? So, I thought that was interesting. It's true. Geographically, you could definitely say that Europe is basically a peninsula, <laughs> not a continent. So he'd be okay with Eurasia. Yeah, he's all about Eurasia. Yeah, that's what he's okay. all about. He's all about one giant slab of continent. <laughs> uh, we've got a lot more to do, Dave. We'll st- we'll have to stop here and um, and continue. So I wanted we want to talk about history, um, how we got to this Western civilization business in the first place, and then and then we're gonna leave the academy and talk about all the racism in world fairs and displays and politics. 